You're back with the podcast meant for the type of medical folks that the more they learn, the more they want to know. As important and interesting as knowledge is about hypercalcemia, it is the experience of the patient that matters most. And very often when we first start learning about symptoms with hypercalcemia, we learn the mnemonic stones, bones, abdominal moans, and psychic groans, which is frequently learned in medical school, but in reality, many patients are asymptomatic because most have mild hypercalcemia. The higher the calcium level goes, the more likely you are to experience symptoms, and very few people will remain symptom-free by the time the serum calcium level reaches 14. Let's start talking about gastrointestinal symptoms. Subjectively, the most common symptom I have noticed patients telling me about is constipation. It can be really severe, like the type when they say it's been 10 days since they had a bowel movement, that kind of severe. And while not totally understood, hypercalcemia is thought to decrease smooth muscle tone. Now, sticking with GI symptoms, when we admit patients for acute pancreatitis, we routinely look at the labs to rule out hypercalcemia because calcium can get deposited in a pancreatic duct, and the elevated calcium may also activate trypsinogen. However, the more common GI symptoms of anorexia, nausea, and vomiting are more typical symptoms of hypercalcemia. Peptic ulcer disease can also occur, but the incidence is probably only minimally elevated compared to the rest of the population, with the exception of those who have primary hyperparathyroidism associated with MEN1. Those multiple endocrine neoplasia 1 patients can have gastrinomas causing Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. Zollinger-Ellison is a condition caused by neuroendocrine tumors that secrete excess amounts of gastrin, and the gastrin stimulates the stomach to secrete large amounts of hydrochloric acid and pepsin, which in turn leads to peptic ulceration of the stomach and small intestine. All right, so therefore, looking at the association of hypercalcemia with gastrointestinal symptoms, abdominal pain is common, and oftentimes that is because of the constipation, or pancreatitis, or ulcers, but hypercalcemia can cause abdominal pain without those symptoms. And the abdominal pain can arise from totally different non-GI tract problems. For example, nephrolithiasis can also be a manifestation of hypercalcemia. The presence of calculi stones in the kidney, which we call nephrolithiasis, can result from chronic hypercalciuria, which exists in conditions like hyperparathyroidism and sarcoidosis. Another issue that you can see is nephrocalcinosis. Nephrocalcinosis is the deposition of calcium phosphate in the renal tubules. Now, kidney issues can happen for other reasons, and one is that the patient can become volume depleted and pre-renal because polyuria occurs in hypercalcemia. Polyuria results from decreased concentrating ability in the distal tubule. I do want to make it clear that mildly elevated calcium levels can exist for years 
without causing kidney disease. So when we are talking about adverse effects on the kidneys, we are usually talking about serum calcium levels above 12. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about nerves and muscles. Nervous system symptoms may exist because calcium plays a big role in neuronal transmission as well as muscle contraction. Therefore, neuromuscular dysfunction can be problematic. This can range from easy fatigability to depression to cognitive issues like lethargy. Those psychic overtones or psychiatric symptoms probably should be explored further in mild hypercalcemia, as there probably are other etiologies. However, in the more extreme cases of hypercalcemia, the symptoms may be worse than depression, and the patient can even be in a coma. All right, so when we talk about calcium, we have to talk about the bones. The storage place for calcium is our bones. After all, calcium provides the firmness we must have for our bones and teeth. That's very important to my German Shepherd, as the calcium proves hours of fun in getting to the marrow. And that reminds me of the late Rodney Dangerfield, who said, What a dog I got. His favorite bone is in my arm. One of the biggest concerns of diseases like hyperparathyroidism is osteoporosis. I know I am a thick-headed bodybuilder, but I truly believe one of the best things those of us in healthcare can do is promote weight-bearing exercise to build bone and muscle density. That way, we can face the many etiologies of losing bone mass, a small percentage of which is from diseases causing hypercalcemia. But no matter who you are, stronger bones and muscle help avoid hospitalizations in nursing homes and pain from fractures. The philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer said, the two enemies of human happiness are pain and boredom. And I think when you break bones and can't get around, you not only have physical pain, but you can't do the things you want to do. And being bored is so boring. You may start doing desperate stuff to pass the time, like recording podcasts. So getting back to the hypercalcemia story, one dreaded complication of hypercalcemia is osteoporosis and therefore fragility fractures. Bone pain can also occur without fractures and hypercalcemia. Moving on to the heart, cardiac pathology from hypercalcemia is also possible. There's not a ton of data from studies Though over the years, doctors have had their suspicions of how it can adversely affect the heart, calcification of the coronary arteries, valves, and myocardium is unfavorable. While not something I typically do for prognostication, some practitioners do utilize cardiac CAT scans for locating and measuring the extent of calcified plaque in the coronary arteries to risk assess for future heart attack. Hypercalcemia also shortens the QT interval, which theoretically may contribute to arrhythmias. And decreased vascular compliance is another concern. Uh, but whether these things will truly be studied for outcomes in large trials of patients with hypercalcemia 
seems unlikely, at least in the near future. Though there is some debate as to whether we should be treating hyperparathyroidism with surgery and asymptomatic mild hypercalcemia. So maybe we will accumulate some data on that patient population that chooses not to have surgery. Let's move on to talk about diagnostic testing. Now, testing needs to be individualized. So don't take the generalizations of what I have to say about further testing as gospel, but rather they are just some considerations to think about. Let's take a moment to consider the protein albumin. A huge function of albumin is to help maintain blood pressure by providing colloid osmotic pressure that prevents plasma loss from the capillaries. However, albumin also has a very important role as a carrier protein because much of blood calcium is protein bound, a decrease in the protein albumin will result in a decrease in total serum calcium levels. In fact, hypoalbuminemia is the most common cause of decreased serum calcium on lab results. If you see a decrease in serum calcium, you should see the associated decrease in albumin or else you need to investigate the cause of the hypocalcemia and that can come from all kinds of disorders like hypoparathyroidism or malabsorption diseases like celiac sprue, vitamin D deficiency can cause it, alcoholism, pancreatitis, sepsis, and a bunch of other etiologies. So hypocalcemia can be bad because it can cause tetany and convulsions among other life-threatening maladies. But for the sake of this discussion and maintaining our focus on hypercalcemia, Note that a normal serum calcium level with a decreased serum albumin indicates hypercalcemia. Total serum calcium is the sum of the soluble and protein-bound calcium in the blood. If the albumin protein is low, so should your calcium be low. When you see a low albumin and a low calcium, for each one gram per deciliter decrease in albumin, add 0.8 to serum calcium to arrive at the corrected calcium value. Or, if you are lazy or maybe just need to be more accurate, go ahead and draw an ionized calcium. Ionized calcium is a calcium in your blood that is not attached to protein. Ionized calcium is therefore also known as free calcium and is the active form of calcium. Another way to say that is measuring ionized calcium is a direct measure of calcium in its active form. Needless to say, for certain populations like liver disease patients that have hypoalbuminemia or critically ill patients, you need to test ionized calcium if you want to get an accurate measure. In a population where the balance between free and bound calcium is typically stable and predictable, like an outpatient population just getting a checkup, the serum calcium in a basic metabolic panel is usually just fine. Now back in the day, docs would take a bunch of skeletal radiographs looking for bone disease. Most today would see little point in doing that routinely. I think it's reasonable to evaluate 
bone mineral density in many patients with hypercalcemia, particularly if it's from hyperparathyroidism, you probably have already obtained a basic metabolic panel if you've diagnosed hypercalcemia, but clearly it's important to be looking at kidney function in hypercalcemia. If there are concerns about kidney stones, doing a radiological evaluation for nephrolithiasis or a 24-hour urine collection for serum calcium is always a consideration. However, the current guidelines state that screening for stones in someone with no previous history is not recommended. If you're worried about multiple myeloma, then obviously getting a serum protein electrophoresis or a urine protein electrophoresis is needed to start that workup. There are some occasions you may want to test serum phosphorus. I can't say I do that routinely, but it might be helpful in clarifying potential scenarios. Most phosphorus is combined with calcium in the bones, but phosphorus is also crucial in the metabolism of glucose, lipids, energy transfer, and acid base balance. There is often hypophosphatemia in primary hyperparathyroidism, but be careful evaluating the hospitalized population when measuring phosphorus because lots of stuff can cause a low phosphate level, like vomiting and malnutrition. There can be hyperphosphatemia when vitamin D intoxication is present and is also very commonly found in those with kidney dysfunction. Parathyroid hormone testing is very important in nearly every case of hypercalcemia, and that will be addressed in the next lecture on hyperparathyroidism. Likewise, I will be addressing imaging considerations regarding the parathyroids at some point in this series. So with that, make no bones about it. I will be back and catch you on the next round.